Hello, welcome back to the Red Fern Book Review. I am your host, Amy Mayer, and today I am joined by my friend and regular, and one of my favorite guests, I know I said that last week, but it's true, (laughs) Susan Matheson with Bedside Table Books. And what we have today is she is going to preview Uh, summer reads as everyone's getting ready to kind of think about whether it's the end of a school year or looking forward to hopefully traveling a little bit this summer. Um, Usually people change kind of their reading pace. Maybe it's when they pick up books um, for the first time in a few months or they just, usually it involves, I would say, an element of fun, I would say, is what people look for for summer. So with that, I want to say, hi, Susan. How are you? Hi, Amy. I'm very well. Delighted to be here. We've uh, just been chatting away, as, and this is kind of fun. We just chat away, and we have all these eavesdroppers out there <laughs> saying nice things to us after. I know. We've actually chatted already for half an hour before we even went on because we just couldn't stop talking. <laughs> but, um, you know, what I wanted to kick this off with, before we get into the actual books, Susan, um, I knew, obviously, this is what we were going to be talking about today. So I was doing my own reading, and I wanted to show you something and get your reaction I was looking up kind of what are the summer reads out there, and the thing that I noticed, I picked up this article, and it's actually from Good Housekeeping, and it was, I don't know if you saw this article, it says, Mm -hmm. 20 new books to add to your summer 22 reading list, and I was just struck by the covers, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to see... I'll describe this to everybody, but um, if you have a reaction. So if you look at this, um, what what do you notice there? <laughs> well, there's a, just definitely a theme in colors, <laughs> but there, there's some artistic ones. There's been a real trend. I think it would be fascinating to go back in history and look at how covers have changed. The art has changed. Um, these lots of big graphic white lettering, um, you know, really primary colors. And I think if we went back, we'd find that a lot of the art was much more subdued. Um, I, I have blogged before, if you go back into the archives of the blog of Bedside Table Books, about UK versions and North American versions and Australian versions of covers. And the sensibility is really different. And you'll find that if you're in a British bookstore and you're wandering through, it's something that might be familiar and kind of almost cartoon-esque or playful in North America might even have quite a grim cover in uh, in the UK. So it's something I've noticed for a long time. But also, if we look back at the eras, I think each era, there's a def- different sensibility. And because you gave me a heads up that you might be asking this question, the choices I've talked about or will talk about today, I've kind of looked more carefully at the covers. Oh, good. <laughs> so we'll come back we can, to the covers. We can kind of read that. But, but this particular article, what happened when I pulled it up, to me, at first glance, they all read the same. Mm-hmm. They're all, as Susan said, um, bright colors, primary colors. You see some pink. And the letter lettering is uh, block lettering. You know, sometimes you'll see, like I picked up some kind of favorite books of mine. Um, here's the 13th Tale by uh, Diane Setterfield. And it, you see more script. And this is not like that. It's more block lettering. And sometimes the art kind of stands on its own for covers and not in these books. And so I am curious to, I think everyone's kind of, maybe it's like fashion, like Mm -hmm. you kind of said, everyone's doing the same thing. And 
I don't know why. I just picked up this book. Um, this mm-hmm. is an older book. Have mm-hmm. you read this book? I haven't read it, but I know of it. Um, it's called Evening by Susan Minot. And I read it years ago, but the reason why I just wanted to show this to you, it's a picture. It's like a faded blue or no, it looks like almost like nighttime blue mm-hmm. uh, with a moth, I think, climbing on a tree. And it's just really simple and quiet. And I just remember I knew nothing about this book and I was at Chapters and I just picked it up just because of the art. I definitely know it's a factor when I pick a book. And, and look, talk about the Dutch house and Patchett's The Dutch House. Yeah. And that book, it, it wouldn't have mattered to me if it was a horrible book. It was, wasn't. It was lovely. <laughs> but um, that cover, and that was the one which is the photo, or it's a painting that Anne Patchett actually had it commissioned of, she gave two pages of her book to an artist and asked him to paint. And he painted the character, Maeve, I think she was. And it's absolutely stunning. And I would have bought that book for no other reason other than the cover art. Oh. It's absolutely stunning. So look that one up, The Dutch House. Okay, well, let's talk about, tell us, tell everyone what you're recommending for summer reads. Okay, well, as typically is the case, I think I sent a uh-oh message to you <laughs> a few days ago saying, I'm, I've narrowed it down, I'm right at 20. <laughs> so we're, we're now at six, so we'll work our way through these six choices. There are so many good books coming out, so many great authors. Um, so I focused... Um, you know, we're looking now, we're sort of mid-May, but there are coming in July, August, September, you know, get these ones read quick because there are lots coming down with really big writers. So those will be fun. We'll, we'll chat about those another time. But um, the first book I'm going to choose to talk about, you will have all heard of it, I'm sure, and it's called Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. And this is the it book. It That's is for sure. everywhere. Yeah. And it has a great backstory, but it's a Good Morning America, April book club pick. Um, it's on every reading list. I think it's probably on the one you were just talking about. It is. About. Yeah. But this one, look up the UK cover. I think I sent it to you because it is, it's just great. And I was talking to a friend the other day. She was actually buying this book, Lessons in Chemistry. And she said, oh, this cover reminds me of Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Mm, and it does. Mm, it's very mm-hmm. evocative, that very sort of cartoonesque uh, woman on the front. And the UK version is very different. It's colorful. It's whimsical. It's something I'd want in my collection. Might have to order the UK version. Um, but this is a really high ratings on Goodreads. Um, picked up for publication in 35 countries, but the best part about it is it's a woman who is a debut writer at 64 years old. So Bonnie Garmus is a copywriter, and she went to work one day and was the only woman in a boardroom with a group of men, and she was not impressed with how things went down that day, and uh, there was a lot of sexism and just all those battles that women have fought for years and years. And she came home and sat down at her kitchen table and she was so frustrated and she just felt this voice in her head. I wish I could find a voice in my head one day, but (laughs) anyway, this woman just was an amazing character and she was just going off. And so Bonnie Garmus just started writing the story and it was this woman that was incredibly accomplished as a scientist, but really battling, and this was in the 60s, um, really battling the, um, you know, the restraints that were being imposed upon her. Um, But she had such a distinct voice, and it reminded Bonnie of her mother's 
era, you know, the early 60s. And she, as a child, would watch her mother kind of just in this really traditional role. And she knew there were other women out there who were trying to find a way. So this character, when when Bonnie sits down and starts to write the book, the character is this highly trained scientist, but she's really fierce in her convictions. And she ends up becoming the very reluctant television cooking show star (laughs) and forms an amazing following of women who come to her because she tells them that she, they need to go out and not dumb themselves down. They need to take control of their own lives. And she goes a bit rogue, kind of got the feeling that this was sort of a where'd you go Bernadette character or um, a character like Eleanor Oliphant. That's sort of um, these women that are kind of unique and, and don't necessarily fit into the world, but they make their way. So there's apparently a great cast of idiosyncratic characters. Some are rowers. There's all sorts of funny sports things. Um, and their love interests, and there's a child, and there's a dog that's a character. So that has me really intrigued. <laughs> Lots of people referencing the dog. And um, it's it has this sort of, you'll feel it when you look at the cover and the North American, or both covers. Um, it's sort of a breath of fresh air is how a lot of people have described it. It's already been picked up as an Apple TV production. It's already in the works. And uh, Brie Larson is set to star in that. So it's a great story from many ways. You don't even have to read it. I just love that this 64-year-old writer who has written one other book that had over 98 rejections, <laughs> and this one was just picked up by 35 different countries and ready to roll. So um, I love the success of that already, and I've seen interviews. She's the most personable interviewee. It's just, just terrific. So anyway, I wish this book luck, and I know you're going to see it in every beach bag and uh, every airplane seat. <laughs> it sounds like a mashup. It sounds like yeah. complete chiclet but with a, a lot more substance to it behind yeah. it and which that's what I've th- heard. I think yeah. I think that sounds perfect yeah because sometimes when you read those chiclet books you just maybe want a little bit more mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this sounds like that kind oh, of well, perfect I love combo ones that are character driven you know we think back like right back to Harriet the spy like you know these great characters yeah. that never leave you and um, and I, I get the feeling that this character whose name is Elizabeth Zott that she's that voice that the writer heard in her head, it's so distinct and so strong. And uh, and those are great books to read because, you know, they almost become part of our lore later on. So I look forward to that. I've not seen a bad review of it. And and I might not have picked it up. It has a very peachy cover. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, yeah, it really, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. And I think a lot of people will have fun with that one. Okay, what's next? Okay, so this one's a bit rogue, but we're going to stick with the uh, kind of the cooking theme in a way. Um, The book is called You Had Me at Pet Nat, a natural wine-soaked memoir by Rachel Signer. So this is also a very strong woman, but it's a memoir. So she's writing about her own life. And in her early 20s, she was a bit of a... um, She's a bit of a lost soul. She was following the route of academia. She was um, studying to become an anthropologist, had done trips to Africa and around the world, but she was a total loss. So she decided this wasn't for her. She came from a background of journalists in her family, so she decided to start um, freelancing and doing some novel writing, but it wasn't paying the bills, so she ended ended up in restaurant work, which many people do. 
But she found herself working at Diner, which was one of the first farm-to-table restaurants in New York City, really at the beginning of that whole movement. And while she was there, she tried this wine, and it was called Pet Nat. And Pet Nat is, oh no, I've erased what I was going to, what it's short for, but essentially it's a fizzy type of wine uh, that has never, it's short, Pet Nat is shortened for the French, but it's a um, oh, here it is. Petillant Natural. So it's a naturally sparkling wine with no additives. And the sparkle comes from its own kind of process. So it's a style of wine. And she was quite taken with it. But being a writer, she was also taken by the stories behind the producers of these wines, because they're sort of rogue wines in a way. They don't follow the um, conformity of, you know, having to meet particular style requirements and they're not there to be commercialized. So they're very kind of standalone. And so I'd never heard of them. I'm not a big drinker as most people know (laughs) who tried to drink with me, but they, um, but I do love these stories about these wineries and the vineyards and people who go into this mad, crazy wine world and you meet such characters there so she ends up traveling around the world being following along in these um with these pet nat creators but i'm going to read from hachette which is the public publisher of the book i'm going to read the paragraph that sold me on this book so it says it was rachel signer's dream to be that girl the one smoking hand-rolled cigarettes out the windows of her 19th century parisian studio apartment Wearing secondhand Isabel Morand jeans and sipping a glass of Beaujolais, redolent of crushed roses with a touch of horse mane. Instead, she was an underappreciated freelance journalist and waitress in New York City, frustrated at always being broke and completely miserable in love. When she tastes her first Petillat Natural Pet Nat, a type of journal, a t- no, type of natural wine made with no additives or chemicals, it sets her on a journey of self-discovery, both deeply personal and professional that leads her to Paris, Italy, Spain, Georgia, and finally deep into the wilds of South Australia. And so then she asked herself, can she really handle the unconventional life she claims she wants? Okay, she had me at the Parisian studio apartment. <laughs> but she travels all over, and you can watch YouTube videos of her now, and she's living in Australia. She's met which, who she calls her wild man, and uh, a completely unexpected love that she would never have thought would be her her dream but it's that sort of I mean there are a number of these we've talked before about finding freedom and save me the plums and measure of my power some of these you know interesting segues into the world of food and beverage and I love a food memoir in fact I just pulled this um this isn't a brand new book but um it's on my list it's 2018 it's called Buttermilk Graffiti, and it's um, the author is Edward Lee, and he's a chef, and he travels around the United States to, I think, check out um, the different regional diners and drive-ins. Yeah, <laughs> different regional cuisine, and there's a book from many years ago that these um, well-known food critics did called Road Food in the United States, and they did the same thing, like mm-hmm. to go find the best cherry pie, whatever. But I just love. A food memoir. And, well, I, and I've and done food. Yeah, so the wine so sort of seemed like an yeah. intriguing one as well. And uh, I I really, there are special kind of people that get drawn into this world and they tend to be creatives and um, and yet they have to be business people too. But this, um, while it is wine, it's a whole different, it's sort of a 
untraditional approach to wine. And so that adds another element. So yeah, I'm excited about that one too. Okay, what's next? All right, now we have, and if anyone's read my blog lately, I think one of my most recent posts posts was about essays and how I've come to really appreciate the essay because uh, it's been a struggle reading in these last few years. And essays are these lovely little chunks that you get great stories, but um, they aren't demanding of us in many ways. So in the last little while, I actually independently read two essays that made me stop and go, who wrote this? What is this? They were just so impactful. And then by chance, I found out they were both in the same collection. And the collection is called Letters to a Stranger, Essays to the Ones Who Haunt Us by Colleen Kinder. And so Colleen Kinder is a Yale grad. She's now an instructor there. And she was always interested in the narratives behind the news stories. She wanted to know what was the journalist or the um, mm. man on the ground, what was his experience like, or hers experience? What, what were in those personal notebooks that didn't make it to air? And so she began a reading series in an online magazine called Off Assignment, and it was devoted to these stories. And this went on for a couple of years. I think that was founded kind of mid 2015-ish, 16, somewhere in there. And as she looked back, she realized there was a common thread becoming evident, which was that there was many stories that were written that came to the surface that were about the people that had been met, like a, a stranger, like this brief encounter on a travel. So, so 65 writers end up collecting their stories in this book and they share, and some of these writers are like Lauren Groff, Maggie Shipstead, Pico Ayer, big, big names. Oh, wow. Particularly in travel writing. And they share brief encounters that had a profound lasting impact on their lives. And do you know that I think it's through Craigslist. There's that missed connections column. Yeah. And so, and I've written, I've blogged before about missed connections. And so this includes quite a few things like that. So this separate column ended up becoming this book, um, Letters to a Stranger. And it's the people that do have this lasting impact on your lives, even if you spent just a really short period of time with them. And some of the themes in the book are, um, I gather it's sort of divided into these themes are gratitude, wonder, farewell, remorse. Um, and as I say, the two I read, uh, one was the Maggie Shipstead one, and there was another, I can't recall the writer. Um, I was just blown away how in a short essay, they can just take you so deep. Yeah. It's just really, really. Uh, and they're harder to write, frankly. Yes. Oh, for sure. Because you have to be so uh, precise in your language and so forth. But anyway, really excited about this one. She recently appeared on CBC radio. There was a, um, an interview with her. And um, again, little excerpts that just make this a, a must read in my books for sure. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, um, has a nice cover too. What's, oh, we'll go check that out. <laughs> Colorful. What's the next one? Okay, this one here that I I like the North American cover. The UK one is is not as uh, interesting, but very artistic, very dark. Again, these covers really quite interesting. So this one is called "We Measure the Earth with Our Bodies" by Sarah Yangson Lama. And it's a debut novel as well, and it's getting a lot of positive attention, even though it isn't um, out until mid-May or just now. But it um, is creating so much interest. So the writer was born in Nepal, 
and spent her earliest years there, then moved to Vancouver and grew up here. Uh, she has a BA in creative writing from UBC, and then she went off and did her MFA at Columbia, and she lives in New York City. But being Nepalese, she was very much aware of the um, history of the region. And so in, just to bring everyone up to speed on our history, in 1959, China invaded Tibet. And uh, this led to you know, the typical colonization, um, leading to displacement of populations and families being separated and needing to embark on rather extreme escapes and that sort of thing. So all of that is, a, you know, those are themes in many regions of the world, but very few times have I heard about Tibet um, in this region. But when you think of the geography alone, if you're going to escape from Tibet, you've got some mountains to climb. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. So that's an element of the story. And it follows the lives of the family as they make this escape. And then how uh, members of that family and others that they are associated with forge new lives. And it, it covers 50 years and sort of strikes me when I read about it. Um, it's kind of an epic like Pachinko where it's this, oh, yeah. you know, family that's moving and dealing with all of these um, oppressive forces and having to reinvent themselves and to connect with the contemporary world around them that they might not culturally understand to maintain their dignity and um, and maintain that connection with their past family and then their their ancestral lands, so it moves right forward to contemporary times in Toronto, and um, and I've always when I think of Nepal, when I think of Tibet, that region, Bhutan, all those countries, um, there's a real mysticism about them, and right. there's there is a um, there is a found relic that's mentioned in this book that it will kind of move through the generations as a connection and I feel that might actually address some of that mysticism as well um, but anyway it just looks to me to be so interesting um, we love those big stories I you know I think of Nightingale and oh yeah some of those love big that. escapes and the geography and and then how in the modern times, you know, people are trying to find their way. And uh, so this one appeals to me for that. But it's also interesting that there's that con local connection with the writer as well, having grown up in Vancouver. So we're on to Carolina Built, a novel by Kiana Alexander. And I'm not going to ask you if you know this author, because you would admit, <laughs> and if you did, it would be embarrassing. She's a really prolific writer. She's written over 40 novels, but a lot of adult-only romances ah! <laughs> and Harlequin romances. And and uh, and this is not how I came across the book. But <laughs> anyway, so she's, uh, Kian Alexander is a well-established writer, extremely successful, and she's from North Carolina. And then one day she randomly heard about a legendary woman from North Carolina as well, whose name was Josephine N. Leary. And this woman um, was born in the late 1800s and was a freed black woman. So she was born into slavery on a plantation, and I think until she was about nine. And then she left that world and ended up becoming one of the most successful real estate inventors in North Carolina. She was a wife, a mother, a barber, and she um, 
you know, juggled all of those uh, responsibilities in her life. But at the same time, she taught herself how to manage her finances and to make really smart um, investments. Um, and it was just so unique for the times that you'd have a person with that experience end up becoming uh, so well respected for her business uh, savvy. So it's kind of an interesting take on um you know, rags to riches <laughs> in a different way. This is, so this is the real life woman. Um, but the writer, Kian Alexander, couldn't believe that she herself was North Carolinian and had never heard of this woman. So she drove really deep into the archives at Duke University and read everything she could about this particular woman. And then two years later, she began a novel and the main character of this novel, this Carolina Belt, is based on this woman, this businesswoman, who was so focused on leaving um, a legacy to her children with her business savvy, but also she had incredible challenges during her life as well. So all of this is brought together beautifully into this novel by Kiana Alexander. So that is probably not necessarily a beach read, but it certainly will take you to a different world. And I love the business element to it as well with, um, with a woman who would be very unexpected business success. I love hearing about that. And I think, um, I just even think my own grandmother, um, she was very entrepreneurial and did all kinds of things that then the next generation didn't do. I think those women, this woman would have had so many challenges, but I just find they're really fascinating. Yeah. As opposed to women from the 50s, let's That's say. Right. The next one is um, Geraldine Brooks. When I heard that Geraldine Brooks... I was, love her. I know, was writing a book. I had no choice, but it wouldn't matter. She could have written about cereal for all I care. She was... I will read her books. She's just one of those authors. Mm -hmm. So... If people are having trouble placing her, she's she wrote Year of Wonders, Caleb's Crossing. Um, she won the Pulitzer for March, um, which was the Civil War novel based on uh, Louisa May Alcott's characters uh, in Little Women. She wrote about the imaginary story of uh, their father in the Civil War. So she is a researcher first and foremost, um, Geraldine Brooks. She came through journalism school. Um, just a really successful journalist. And if you read any of these books, Year of Wonders was about the bubonic plague. Caleb's Crossing was the first uh, Native American to attend Harvard. She just goes so deep into her research, which just creates this amazing authenticity to what she writes. So this one, the book is called Horse, <laughs> just that, Horse. It's She calls it a braided novel. And it has a number of stories, but they're linked by the story of the famous racehorse Lexington. So one, if we consider we follow this theme of braiding, one uh, theme of the book is set in 1850 Civil War era Kentucky. And it focuses on the caretakers of the horse who would typically be um, black, recently freed, perhaps slaves, um, who were be kind of the lesser thans in a way in that time. Um, and yet the incredible responsibility they were given to be the caretakers of this successful racehorse. And then this was beyond or before the time of photography. So we don't really have a 
um, very many images from that time, but there was a painter who painted this horse, Lexington. And this painting later shows up, and now we move ahead to 1954, and it's a New York City gallery owner who becomes obsessed with the painting. And so there's another stream to the story. I love anything where art gets woven in. <laughs> so with you there. And it's... Um, very interesting. Again, you can probably look up some of these actual images as well. And then in 2019, the Smithsonian removes the bones of the horse. And this is where the root of the title is, is the horse Lexington's, it was always preserved. The, all the bones, its, its um, skeleton was preserved and was on display for many years at the Smithsonian. And then over time, it actually got put in the attic. <laughs> And then in 2019, a team of researchers were assigned to study, and it had was no longer associated with Lexington. It was now just horse. The bones were horse. And so um, in order to compare it to sort of other species. So it, they start to study this skeleton to learn more about it. So now we're in 2019 with these researchers looking into what this horse was all about. And so throughout the book, there will be themes of racial injustice, um, animals and their connections to humans, art, science, horse racing, like so many elements all woven in together as only Geraldine Brooks can do. And uh, she herself uh, took up horseback riding in the, in her 50s, and so in the last 10 years or so, and she um, really bonds with horses. So I think there'll be that sentimental element that so many of us who are horse lovers know is unique to humans and horses, that connection. Well, I was looking at my own list for summer, and mm-hmm. horse was one of the ones yeah. that I had also set aside. And I just wanted to mention another book that... Um, is on my radar. Actually, I'm about to go pick it up from the library, but it's called Booth oh, by yeah. Karen yeah. Joy Fowler. And it mm. I think those would pair lovely t- yeah, together. Yeah, era in time. Uh, yeah. Same era, maybe a little earlier, but mm-hmm. um, it's about the family around John Wilkes Booth, who, of course, shot Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And it, I guess the author said they didn't want to give him too much airtime mm-hmm. and they just really wanted to explore the family and he comes he was a actor but he comes from a, a big theatrical family kind of sounds like there was a lot of dysfunction in the family a large family off the grid family and mm-hmm. um uh, i i'm just really kind of curious about that yeah so. and it's been reviewed well lots of people speak highly of it so i think it's well written too um okay so just to conclude, that was great, by the way. Thank you. And um, what do you think you're going to read next? Because that's always the big, big oh, decision, I know. hey? There's so many, so many <laughs> good books. I could probably never read and just research all the fun books coming out. Um, Anna Quinlan has a new writing book coming out. And Anna Quinlan is another one of these great authors that, um, you know, she could write the menu for dinner and I would want to read it. So her newest book that's coming out is called Write for Your Life. And it's not necessarily for writers. In fact, 
it seems it may even be encouraging people who are non-writers to take the time just to pick up a pen and see what happens because there is a, a therapy to writing that mm-hmm. I think is an outlet that she, Anna Quinlan, has always been grateful for. And um, so she encourages people to sort of get creative and find a way for writing in their life. But as I say, there's anything she writes would be great. So I have those two. Um, oh, so many memoirs coming out um, just for some real fun. There's an Anna Wintour one coming out. <laughs> Oh, then, is that authorized? Do we know? Well, or did she write it? No, it's not. Oh. Uh, it's not a uh, autobiography. Um, and I, I'm curious as to how legitimate the sources are. But it's being like Wall Street Journal just did a thing on it, so I think it's um, it's probably fairly reliable. Um, and then another one is Delia Efron, who I just that was on my <laughs> list. Yeah, so she's re- writing a book called Left on Tenth: A Second Chance at Life. So Delia Efron was Nora's sister, and she does in this book speak quite a bit about kind of the big tough topics. But um, I've heard she also has a one. She wrote, um, is it You've Got Mail or? Yeah, I think it was You've Got Mail. Delia did, mm-hmm. not her sister. They wrote together. Oh, they wrote together, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, she has a lovely sense of humor. She's got that Efron gift and is quite accomplished as a writer herself. So, um, But it's a second chance at life. She finds love late in life and um, just some wonderful, I don't know, positivity in, a, in some bleak times for her as well. So sounds like a good one. Well, thank you so much, Susan. And... Um, that was excellent. Well, you're most welcome. And uh, as I say, I always love chatting with you about books and it's uh, always appreciated. We have so many kind people who eavesdrop on us. And <laughs> I know, that's fun. <laughs> okay, thank you so much and I'll, I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much to Susan Matheson for coming back on the podcast. And I have to say, if you're looking for one summer read, uh, that quintessential summer read, I'd check out Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. And with that, I wanted to conclude the second season of the Redfern Book Review. And I'm going to take a hiatus over the summer, like I did last summer. And I'll be back mid-September with a whole new flight of books, authors, and interviews. So, um, happy reading over the summer, and I will talk to you later. Later.